0: Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 119, and we're going to talk about many of the lessons I learned driving a 50 year old Winnebago across the country in wintry conditions that I didn't expect. We're also going to talk about, well, how to drive if your alternator's dead. A tale from the road involving proof that UFOs exist. And a product review of the Kori Toilet. The excitement never ends here, folks. Thanks for coming back once again. Very happy to have you here with me. I am sitting in the Tiki Bago right now on the piece of land we purchased. The mission is over. Over. I managed to get this thing across the country, and it is now sitting comfortably on the banks of the Illinois River in LaSalle County, Illinois. But what a trip. Last week, I recorded in the Tiki Bago in Montana next to the Yellowstone River, and a lot happened during that week, and I thought I would just tell you some of the things that I learned from this experience and a lot of it relates to van life because it's all about living on the road and having to adapt so i didn't actually drive straight from that campsite that i recorded at last week to illinois because i ran into some issues and those issues cost me time and costing me time made me leave my nice weather envelope, and winter weather caught up with me. And it wasn't so much the cold that was the problem, it was the wind. Very quickly, it got so windy that I did not feel safe driving this thing on the road. Now, those of you driving vans around know what that means. It's vans and RVs and trucks are these big sails just asking to be blown out of their lane on the roads. And the Tiki Bago with its 50-year-old steering, was really susceptible to wind. And so I, I pulled off in the town of Box Elder south dakota at a loves and just sat there waiting for the wind to go away basically and i looked on the weather map and found out the wind wasn't going to go away for almost an entire day and as i was planning on how to get the heck out of there a storm blew in with ice and snow and then i was like well i am just stuck (laughs) and i was i stayed there all day And then at 9 p.m., things calmed down enough that I decided to make a run for Wall, South Dakota. But in the morning, things were still terrible, so I ended up spending an entire day in Wall, South Dakota. In fact, I ended up getting a hotel room. And while that may seem like, oh, you know, that's a failure, right? I mean, you have an RV. Why are you getting a hotel room? You can just stay in the RV. No, it was the right thing to do. I needed to rest my brain and my body somewhat. I also didn't want to use up all the resources of the RV trying to stay warm when it was 19 degrees out. I have a limited supply of gas, and I don't know how long the batteries last. I mean, it was just an unknown And so for the cost of a hotel room one night, I could reset. I actually did my laundry at the hotel, and I think that was the smart thing to do. And so the lesson to learn there is it is okay to stay in a hotel once in a while. I mean, that is a resource that's available to you, and, well, take advantage of it when you can. It doesn't mean you failed or anything like that. Now, I ended up having a bunch of mechanical problems Nothing major. I had some fuel filter issues, and I had the tires rebalanced, and uh, and then I had an issue with battery power that I will talk about later in this episode, but I did come up with a list of things that I learned that I'm going to share with you right now. The first of which is what it's like traveling going slow. Truth be told, I could get the Tiki Bago up to 70 miles an hour, and while You know that's a decent speed a lot of the highways i was traveling on had a speed limit of 80. so even at 70 i was going to be going slow but i honestly didn't want to go 70. i didn't think it was safe it used a lot more fuel and i didn't want to push this vehicle that hard i kind of wanted this vehicle to just kind of go slow and steady for a really long way like 2300 miles long way and it took me a while to get into that groove now again 50 year old winnebago the speedometer is questionable there is no tachometer i'm kind of relying on feel for knowing how fast i'm going And I found that I constantly wanted to creep up the speed. I I just, it was like, if I felt the thing could go faster, I subconsciously wanted it to go faster. And I constantly had to remind myself to go slower. And it's the same in the van. Since I got the ambulance, I've tried to stick closer to the speed limit. It just seems more responsible. And, you know, with fuel being expensive, it, it saves a bit of money there. And it's honestly hard sometimes because some roads, especially near cities, people just ignore the speed limit entirely. You have to change the way you drive. Suddenly, you are not in a race. You're not competing with anybody. You're not passing people. You're trying to anticipate people and get out of their way. And that leads me to the second point, is that when you're driving a big, ponderous vehicle... It is super important to learn how to anticipate what the other vehicles are doing. Now, when I first got my driver's license, my dad said to me, it's like, well, you're learning how to drive. It's probably going to take you five years to learn how to drive properly. And I thought, well, why five years? I mean, I'd just taken the classes, I'd passed the test. I clearly can drive the thing. What's going to change in five years? And well, the answer is intuition. After you drive a vehicle long enough, you get intuitions about things. You can see a car and know what it's going to do just based on all your past experience in seeing cars do things. And this becomes a bit of a subconscious thing. You don't have to consciously look at the car and say, hmm, what is that car going to do? You just see that car and you know that it's going to run that red light or it's going to stop or it's going to let you go or whatever's going to happen. That skill. Is something you develop over time. And it is a hugely important skill if you're driving a large, ponderous vehicle because you are not going to be able to stop or speed up with any reliability. I had an incident in the Tiki Bago where somebody was merging onto the highway and simply refused to yield. Now, it was an uphill entrance ramp. So I was going uphill in the Tiki Bago and she was going uphill in her ramp. And She just wouldn't speed up or slow down. She was in a nimble car. She could have easily sped up or slowed down, but she wanted me to adjust to her, which isn't how the law works. And not only that, I couldn't. And so finally she panicked and pulled over into the shoulder and then finally sped up and got out of the way. But the entire thing could have been avoided if she were just paying attention because I was traveling at a constant speed and she had all the control. The thing is I anticipated that she was going to do that because I saw the pattern that she got on the ramp to get on the highway where you're supposed to be speeding up and she didn't and I have seen that enough times that I knew what that meant so I was able to move over to another lane and let her back on the road and then you know a quarter mile later she almost ran off the road again for no some unknown reason she may have been messing with her cell phone I don't know it doesn't matter The point is that you have to be able to anticipate these things and experience is what does that and also as i've mentioned earlier watching a bunch of youtube videos of crashes and things like that as silly as that sounds can also help you develop a little bit of intuition so good skill to have and super important the bigger and more ponderous your vehicle is now this vehicle I knew I was going to have trouble with it. It's just not meant for trips like this. And I had to plan for trouble. So I started doing things based on things going wrong. I didn't plan for the best case scenario. I planned for the worst case scenario. And that was a good thing to do because it came into play a couple of times. For example, when it got windy and I pulled over in Box Elder, That was a very very smart thing to do because when i finally left there and drove out i counted over a dozen rvs and big rigs tipped over on the side of the road a lot of people just pushed through and literally got blown off the road and i wasn't one of them because i planned for disaster basically (laughs) but another more interesting example of that is when i was in the northern cheyenne indian reservation that I was about to enter an area that had very few services. There were no gas stations, there was no service, and I predicted there would be no cell phone service. And my fuel filter was giving me trouble. Now, when your fuel filter gets clogged, your engine will kind of go... It kind of hesitates and it sputters and eventually it will stop completely because the engine is starving for fuel. I had spare fuel filters with me and I thought... I should just take the time now to change them out because I would hate to get stuck someplace where I didn't really have a place to do that. And I pulled over on the side of the road and crawled under the tiki bago and actually changed the fuel filters on the side of the road. And I ended up getting all completely greasy. And there's a whole other story about this that was told last week in the tales for the road. But the point is that I did that to prevent a future problem. And well, I did. So again, That was good. I got through that desolate area because I had done that. One of the things I didn't anticipate on this trip was how hard it would be to find water. Now, in van builds, many of us use five-gallon containers of water that we can take out of the van and then go to a faucet or to a supermarket or wherever and get water. But at an RV or in a bigger van with permanently mounted water tanks, that isn't so easy. I couldn't find any place to get water. Now, where's the normal place you'd get water for an RV? Well, a campground. But I was traveling in March in Montana and South Dakota and Idaho, and most of the campgrounds were closed. In fact, I never saw a commercial campground that was open anywhere near where I needed it to be. Several times I tried to get water, people gave me directions, I even bought four boxes of Girl Scout cookies from someone who said they knew where I could get water, and that didn't work out. And finally using iOverlander, I found a convenience store that was willing to let people use their spigot, and I was able to get water there. And that was great, but before that, wow, it was a serious problem. And remember that the Tiki Bago is is an RV. It's a classic Winnebago, and it has the classic RV stuff in it, such as a flush toilet. It's a marine toilet, they call it, that needs water to work. There's no way to even fake it. So I learned here that we in vans are actually more versatile than RVs in this regard. And if you do have a vehicle with a mounted tank that you can't remove, get something else to carry water with because you might need it. And also get the things you need to get the water into the tank. (laughs) In the Tiki Bago, the water fill is in the back and it's horizontal, or rather it's vertical depending on your perspective. It does not use gravity to get water in the hole. (laughs) You have to use a bendy funnel Or something, and I ended up buying a whole bunch of things, trying to figure out how to get water in there from those five-gallon jugs you can buy at Home Depot, and it was a nightmare. I ended up using a hand pump. Uh, If you're traveling at that time of year, know that water is hard to find. Make sure you have a way to get it, and a way to get it in your vehicle, which uh, proved to be a challenge. You may have heard the joke that uh, he was having trouble seeing, so he turned the radio down ha ha ha. Well, the truth is is that that actually works. You don't see with your eyes. Your eyes are just the sensors. Your brain is the computer that helps you see. And if you're listening to music or talk radio or somebody talking, that distracts from your ability to process what you're trying to see, especially say at night on a highway, when you're trying to read signs or try to figure out where the road lines are because it's snowing or whatever. And I quickly learned that when I was in tricky places, it was very important for me to turn the radio off. It also helped me hear the engine better. So whenever you're feeling a little unsure, go ahead and turn the radio off. It will help. And you'll know when you're getting more comfortable when you start to say, hey, I wish I had some music on. That's kind of a sign that things have turned back to normal. And the last thing I'll throw in here is that staying warm was relatively easy The Tiki bago has a furnace, okay, but I don't know how much propane it uses. I don't know how long my battery is going to last during the night because uh, there's a fan that needs to be powered, and I didn't want to use it too much. So when it was really cold, and I mean like in the 20s, I would turn the furnace onto its lowest level so that it would stay maybe 40 in the Tiki bago with the furnace, and I kept myself warm with a bunch of blankets, no rocket science there. But also, a Diet Coke bottle. Uh, I did not have a hot water bottle with me, so I simply boiled water on the stove, very carefully poured it into a Diet Coke bottle, which (laughs) instantly shrank a little bit, and then put that in bed with me. And it stayed warm for probably seven hours. In fact, at first, it was too hot. I mean, I ended up putting it in a sock because it was so hot, it would actually burn me. But, geez, that... It was like having a dog in the bed with me. It just, it gave off so much heat that I was comfy all night long. And then in the morning when it was, you know, 40 and I was like, oh, I got to get out of bed. I just turned the furnace up and heated up the whole Tiki Bago then. And that worked great. So it is not that hard to stay warm. If you have some resources, you don't actually have to heat the entire inside of your vehicle to a comfortable temperature at night. So there's some things I learned. I hope that they help you too. Wow. It was quite the trip. I'm still recovering somewhat. It was, uh, it was nerve wracking in many, many ways, but now I've got exactly what I wanted. I've got a Tiki Bago on my own land, looking over a river and it's great. Tech talk about a hundred miles from the end of my trip. I pulled over to get some gas, and as soon as I got off the highway, the Tiki Bagos stalled. And this is something that had happened a couple of times. It has this weird issue that when the engine's hot, it will sometimes not idle. And, okay, no big deal. It just started again, except it wouldn't start. It made a completely different sound when it was trying to start, and all the voltage meters that are kind of wonky were reading really low, and I was like, oh, geez, what's going on here? And I honestly don't know exactly what's going on but for some reason that starter battery wasn't powerful enough to start the engine now i had just been driving for several hours everything should have been charged up but it wasn't there is something wrong i don't know what it is but in most cases when this happens to you it's going to be a problem with the alternator now in my case it doesn't look like it is a problem with the alternator but if this happens to you the first thing you should suspect is the alternator so what do you do? Well, the obvious thing is you replace the alternator, but that's not so easy when you're in the middle of a trip or you're just trying to get home. You're going to have to find the alternator. You're going to have to find someone who knows how to replace it. And and some of these vans, that is a little bit tricky because the alternator is using a serpentine belt. It requires a whole lot of skill and tools to get that all adjusted properly and it might not be something you can do on the side of the road but you can still get home and this is how the alternator charges your batteries everybody knows that but the other thing it does is it provides power to your engine so that it can run and that's the part to worry about you can use anything to power your engine as long as it has 12 volts so if you can start your van, you don't have to worry about the alternator to drive it so long as you have a good battery in the van. Now, you can use your leisure batteries to power the vehicle while it's running. You shouldn't use them to start the start the van unless it's a dire emergency because that type of current isn't good for lithium batteries or batteries not meant to be starting batteries. You could do it in a pinch, but if you can get your van running, you can keep it running simply by wiring your batteries up to where the starter battery is. You can use jumper cables or whatever. You can even remove the starter battery if you think there's a problem with it being shorted or something like that. If the vehicle's running and you have good batteries, though it will stay running until those batteries are depleted, and how long that takes depends on what you're using. If you're in an emergency situation, don't use anything. Keep the headlights off, keep the radio off, keep the heater off. That will last for hours. But if it's at night and you have to have the lights on, it's not going to last as long. But anyway, good good little tip to know that if your alternator dies, you're not completely dead. You can get a jump start from somebody and then use whatever batteries you have, even like a jackery. And that will keep you going until you can get somewhere where you can change out that alternator. Tales from the road. Well, folks, it's true. I have proof that UFOs exist. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. But really, I have seen many UFOs in my life. And I am positive that they exist. And you should be too. And that is because... UFO simply stands for Unidentified Flying Object. And I have seen many, many unidentified flying objects. In fact, I saw one this morning. As I was driving from Chicago down to LaSalle County, I saw a bright light in the sky. Now, it was maybe half an hour after sunrise. This bright light was not the sun, And it was also not a star or the moon or anything like that. It was too bright. And while, yeah, you can see Venus in the early morning and things like this. Wasn't that this was a very, very bright light. I was driving West, which means the sun was behind me and it was lighting up. Something in the sky is my thing, but I don't know what it was. And what makes it more mysterious is that it suddenly went off it just disappeared. So what does that mean? Well, yes, it could have been aliens from another planet coming to visit us, or it could have been a Mylar balloon, or it could have been an aircraft, or it could have been any of a hundred other things. And so while yes, it's unidentified because I don't know what it is, that does not mean it was an alien. And it's not the first time I've seen something like that. I was out in the desert of Death Valley driving at night on dirt roads and I saw it looked like a shooting star except it was the brightest, biggest shooting star I've ever seen and things started to drip off of it. It had like these drips of light that fell off of it and then it disappeared. So, you know, a lot of folks have told me, oh yeah, well, you know, that was a meteorite falling to earth or something like that. But it also could have been... Someone lighting off a flare. I don't know. I don't know what it was. Um, So it was flying because it was in the air and it's unidentified. So it also is a UFO. But the point is, is that if you spend time out there traveling, you're going to see things like this. And sometimes it's pretty cool, but it's also okay to just leave them as unidentified. We like having answers for things, but there's no reason to add answers that aren't supported by the evidence. I don't think I've ever seen an alien, and I don't think I ever will. Same with Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, ghosts, and so on and so on and so forth. I like seeing these things. I enjoyed it this morning. I kinda would like to know what it is, but I'm perfectly fine with not knowing what it was. All I know is that it was. A place to visit. So if you come to Chicago. And I do recommend you come to Chicago. Chicago has has gotten beaten up a lot lately in the press and in social media and such. But it is a vibrant, interesting city, and there's lots of stuff to see. And one of those things that often goes overlooked is the Tribune Tower building that was formerly the home of WGN and the Chicago Tribune. This building... Looks like something out of a gothic horror movie. It's it's kind of like a castle sort of thing with all this gothic architecture. But the really interesting thing about it, and this is totally free, you don't need to go inside or anything, is all the objects embedded in the tower. So this was a world news organization, and they would send reporters around the world, and the reporters would bring stuff back with them. And some of the stuff is is shocking, (laughs) to be completely honest. For example, there is a piece of the Great Pyramids in the wall. This doesn't seem like something you should be able to just pick up and take back with you. But back then in the twenties and thirties, that was, you know, big America media company. Oh yeah, sure. Have a piece of our most ancient sacred object to put on the wall of your building. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff like this. There's pieces of the wailing wall from Jerusalem, pieces of the great wall of China, pieces of, well, actually if a, Piece that's often mistaken. um, It's from Craters of the Moon in Idaho, not the actual moon, although you'll hear a lot of people talk about, oh, there's a piece of the moon on there. No, that is not true. They haven't gone quite that far. But it's a fascinating little thing to see, and it's a really nice part of Chicago to walk around. It's right at the end of the Magnificent Mile on Michigan Avenue, and you see the Wrigley Building across the street. And this is right by a famous bridge that's been used in all kinds of movies like The Dark Knight and The Blues Brothers and so on and so forth. So, hey, if you're ever in Chicago and you're looking for something free to do, Go ahead and check out the Chicago Tribune building and walk around it for a while. There's really, it's, it's a museum of world heritage that really makes me scratch my head as to how it ended up cemented to the side of a building in Chicago. Resource recommendation. This is a very cool little thing that I've used in the past, and I think I'm going to use again. It's called Many Thing. So that's like anything with an M at the beginning. Many thing. It takes your old phones, anything that has Wi-Fi access and a camera, and turns it into a security camera for free. It's just the software that activates the camera and then will give it all kinds of parameters to take security footage. For example, it will detect motion and then take a picture, or it will constantly monitor, or it will take a picture every minute or whatever, and then it will upload it where you want so that you can see it. And the whole idea of this program is that you use an old device. Like if you've got an iPhone 5 or something like that that isn't really that usable today, but still works and the camera still works, you can turn that into a security camera. And, you know, this would be kind of cool in your van. Uh, You could set one of these up in your van, and so long as you had Wi-Fi, uh, you could get live updates of what's going on in your van. And it's free. Now, they do have some paid subscription options that will give you more abilities with the software. But I have used the free software, and it does exactly what it says without any hassles at all. I'll have a link in the show notes, but it's called ManyThing. It's fairly easy to find. They have uh, Android and iPhone apps, and I think it's a really nice way to use an old piece of hardware for something that's actually quite useful. And if you think about it, a lot of phone cameras are better than security cameras, so you might actually get a better product for free than you would if you bought something. Product review. Product review. So I picked up a toilet for my ambulance, finally. Now, I I had originally thought I'd be using the bucket method, and I still may. But now that my wife wants to travel with me more, she's less comfortable with that method. So we're back to the cassette toilet. And I, I got a different cassette toilet this time, and this is a preliminary view. I haven't really tested this thing out thoroughly. But uh, so far, it seems like it's pretty good. Now, this is a Kori. Model C-H-4822T, I think you're only going to find basically one Kori toilet out there, but I could be wrong. At any rate, this is a full size cassette toilet. It sits up at a normal height. You don't have to like really squat down to use this one. And one of my favorite features of this is that it has an elongated bowl. So a lot of people find that cassette toilets have a very tiny seat and it's a little bit uncomfortable and sometimes requires some manual manipulation of things, especially if you're a guy. And this one, while certainly not comparable to a home toilet, is much better in that regard. It also has a a weight limit that's impressive. Uh, You can hold over 440 pounds, which is quite a bit. Most of these toilets are maxing out at a little bit more than half that. So if you're a bigger person this might be something that appeals to you however keep in mind it's still small it has a level indicator that shows you how full the waste tank is it has an exhaust valve which is important if you're traveling from altitudes because bad things can happen if that tank gets pressurized this will basically equalize the pressure and that's good (laughs) and it has the rotating Arm valve for emptying waste, which is nice. It gives you a whole lot of flexibility. So in that regard, it's comparable to the Dometic or the Thetford portable toilets, the the normal ones. You pump up a tank with air, a freshwater tank, and then there's a button to press to flush the toilet. Now, if you've used one of these things, this isn't really like a home toilet. You're not really flushing. You're kind of gently rinsing. And often that gentle rinsing isn't really adequate so you end up kind of wiping out the bowl but this one comes with a spray nozzle that attaches to the fresh water tank so you can also you know help out with a bit of spray now you can also just get a spray bottle i mean i have one of those in the tiki bago but having one built in is kind of nice too overall the quality seems pretty good and yet, it still has a cheap feel to it. They, they've they used HDPE, um, high-density propylethylene plastic, for this, which is what milk jugs are made, are made out of. And that's a pretty good plastic because it stays flexible at cold temperatures and it's very durable. But for some reason, it just kind of feels cheap. It's, it's not as finished as, say, the Dometic or the Thetford product. But at the end of the day who cares it really is about how it works and honestly this is easier to deal with than the dometic that i used to have the dometic had a latch in the back that you would undo that latch and you could separate the toilet seat from the waste tank but you were never really sure if it was hooked in properly and it was easy to get misaligned and actually be a pain to shut this is a much simpler system You set the seat module on top of the waste tank, and then there are these two clamps on the side that pull it down into place. It's really obvious when it's locked in place, and it's actually really easy to get it into that position. The only potential drawback is is that you will need to have complete access to this toilet. You will need to be able to pull it out. In order to do anything with it, you can't really mount it. There is a way to temporarily mount it so it doesn't slide around your van, but it doesn't come with that. You either have to figure that out on your own or get another item, which is mentioned in the manual. It is the CHH614 toilet holder, but uh, finding that might not actually be all that easy. This thing is not inexpensive. It was about $150. And if you've been watching the prices on these things, they're all over the place lately. Things are crazy. We know that. And it's no different with toilets. So you might be able to get a deal or you might not. But I think for me and actually the fact that I wanted a a toilet that could also be like another seat This is probably going to work out really well. I'll let you know down the road how I think of it after I've used it for a season, but right now I think it's worth a look. So that is the Kori CHH4822T, which I assume stands for Toilet. Thank you for listening to episode 119. I'm very happy to be back off the road for a bit, but it isn't going to be too long before I'm back out there. I promise. Music as always is by Simon Wagg. And if you're looking to get hold of me, probably the easiest way is at Jeff at built go.com. That's two T's, not three, not one until next time. Remember the words of Charlotte Erickson, who said, I will never lose the love for the arriving but I'm born to leave.